we were one of the first countries to have what we call this new generation disastrous legislation. It took us the better part of about 12 years to have a fair implementation of the Act, and it was promulgated in 2003. We still have major deficits in implementing the legislation in municipalities. And what is it? With that situation, it's just like, you know, it's just a talk shop. We're just saying we're doing this. We have legislation, we have policies, we have plans, but there's no real output to it. There's nothing we can see in how this affects the population or the community or how it reduces their risk or it makes them safer. Hello and welcome to the Crisis Conflict Emerge Management Podcast. I'm Kyle, I'll be your host today. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing the current state of disaster risk governance in Africa with Professor DeWalt Van Niekerk. Professor Van Niekerk is a professor of geography and the founder and head of the African Center for Disaster Studies at Northwest University. He's joining us today to discuss disaster risk governance in Africa, the challenges that countries face when implementing disaster risk reduction strategies, and also delve into the role that different stakeholders, such as governments, NGOs, and communities can play in promoting better disaster risk governance. Additionally, we will discuss examples of how successful disaster risk reduction strategies have occurred in Africa, lessons learned from previous disasters, and the impact of climate change on disaster risk governance. And Professor Vandenkirk, thanks for joining us today. And I know that you're from South Africa, so I probably didn't pronounce your name correctly. How do we officially pronounce that? Thank you much for, very much for the invitation. You know, it's the old cap. I know that does not always roll all the tongue so easily, so you got it actually 100% correct. Okay, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. So let's start with your background and the story behind starting the African Center for Disaster Studies. Can you give us a little bit more context and information of how you got to where you are today? Oh, sure. I started off my academic career in political science and development studies and human geography. And uh, part of my research on my master's level focused on early warning, but much more from political stability point of view within the, the SADC context of Southern Africa development community. And in that year, it was in this transition space in South Africa, where we went over to democracy um, out of the apartheid government and the hegemonic role which South Africa played in the region kind of was extremely diffused in that area. And then in that period, I came upon the, the whole space of disaster management and the university I worked for there was actually the, the only one that presented short courses, you know, professional courses in disaster management for, for the whole of the Southern Africa region. And one thing led to the next, I found myself working in that space, more looking at early warning from broader added perspective. And then as, as things progressed, I received the opportunity to move to another university to establish a center specifically that focuses on disaster management back then and disaster risk and resilient issues. Uh, that was in 2002. So the center was established. And from there, our main focus was on capacity development, very much linking with industry, linking with government. A huge amount of our work went into assisting at various levels of government from municipalities to regional to national government and also other governments outside of, of South Africa to understand disaster management better and to develop processes, plans, legislation and policies to assist them in implementing and ensuring kind of a bottom, not only a bottom-up approach, but also getting the, the right kind of uh, policies in place that in, would enable implementation of disaster management and disaster risk issues from a bottom-up perspective as well. And from then on, we did quite a lot of research, obviously, linked to these projects. And in that period, we also established strong programs, undergraduate programs in disaster management linked up to geography, urban planning, 
uh, political science, public management. So we tried to throw the net quite wide and interdisciplinary. And now our focus in, in our research has shifted to the broadest issues of climate change of resilience within the disastrous space as well. Well, thanks for the background. I know that there is quite a lot to unpack there in terms of discussions and the work that you're doing. But I think since you do have such an Africa focus naturally, it would be good for our listeners to sort of understand what are some of the common challenges that you have in Africa and South Africa and sort of in the regions that you're working in. And especially in terms of implementing disaster risk reduction strategies within the context and against the background of a changing climate, which is obviously going to be something that is going to impact Africa quite substantially. No, absolutely. What has happened in Africa from the disaster management, I would say probably from 20 years ago, received a bit more prominence from the previous two decades. The focus was very much, well, and it actually still is, unfortunately, but it's been very much focused around disaster response to events. So if you look at you know, what has happened in, in many regions and in many, many countries, that was that focus kind of dominated a lot of the activities that went on, the, the budgets that was allocated. And disaster management per se, as it was understood back then, was much more time to implement this disaster management cycle thing, which I think our research have shown is not a right conceptual framework to use anymore. But there was also the cyclical thinking linked to, to disasters and thinking that if we implement this cycle, we will be able to reduce disasters. And we know it hasn't happened. That thinking was, was fundamentally flawed. And countries have moved on in the past largely linked to what is happening in the international community with the Yorga Framework for Action that came into being with the prominence of climate change and the linkages of climate change and disaster risk reduction that was happening, and now with the Sendai Framework as well. And what is happening to see in this, this two-decade process was that moreover, regional and continental institutions have taken ownership of disaster risk management issues. And you could see had a flow of effect into countries and what they were doing and how they were thinking about it and the, the type of processes that was implemented. But it's not a, it wasn't a process without many hiccups and there's various reasons for this. But what we now see in Africa that there's more over countries having very good policies and legislation for disaster management from a national straight down to a local level. A lot of people with capacities and knowledge and in the research and academic sector, there's more over universities that understand this is the important component. So we see quite a lot of centers being established within other universities. And in the past 10 years, there's been a plethora of master's degrees, new master's degrees in various universities across the continent. And we've also seen a lot of networks being established between different universities to support each other and to help with research and student supervision and, and all those things. So it's a really on a, on a multi-level and multi-sector basis that it has exponentially grown. And we, we are still growing. Where we find ourselves currently is that there's a massive focus on obviously the implementation of the Sendai framework, how governments are doing this. And then also very specifically for the African continent, we have a program for action that we try to achieve, which runs concurrently. And it's kind of an add on to the Sendai framework as well. So we really, like, as I said, on this, this upward curve in, in trying to do a lot of things, but with quite a lot of issues linked to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that resonates with a lot of probably with our listeners are feeling in terms of the response side mechanism in terms of disaster risk reduction and, and emergency management being heavily focused on the response or let's just say oriented towards a response and, and less so in other phases. And that often drives, not always, 
right? But let's say in lesser developed areas, you might see where emergency managers or city emergency managers or even possibly even a state or especially if you're in smaller nations, the emergency managers or those that have this portfolio of disaster risk reduction are coming from the response side. So the former fire chief, police chief, things like that. So it seemed to be an add-on to the response mechanism. But that has been slowly shifting over time, right? So things have matured more with Sendai Framework, with Hyogo, with all these other sort of pushes into societal resilience and resilience and what that means in terms of climate security and all these other dynamics coming up. But you mentioned something that I wanted to just dive into a little bit because you mentioned that the research that you were doing or you have done has shown that this response framework in, in terms of these phases is not necessarily working anymore. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, yes, I can. We actually published, I think, two or three articles on this as well. The recent one came out a year or two ago. We did it with colleagues from Dover University in the UK. We have to take a few steps back and, and then understand where the, the cyclical approach to disaster management came from. And it's very much linked to the UN system, which tried to build capacity. And in that thinking of about two, three decades ago, and people kind of adopted this, this as a linear process of implementation without understanding that there's a bigger picture to it, without understanding and addressing the root causes of disasters and disaster risk. And the, the notion developed to Assume that if we do preparedness mitigation, inevitably we're going to go to a process where there's actually early warning phase, but we're going to sit with the disaster and there after that we have to do recovery. And you see, this wasn't a very clever way of thinking of disaster management. And I remember seeing a video made by one of the US news channels as well after I think it was Hurricane Andrew, which actually kind of was fun at FEMA and saying that, well, you did exactly what you said you're going to do. You know, you had all of these processes, you had a disaster and it led to a disaster again. I mean, they, jokingly, he actually captured exactly what the problem is with that, that cycle, that you have to understand if you do disaster risk reduction, you have to find ways of breaking out of the possibility of sitting with disaster. Your planning should obviously have to plan for the worst, but your planning shouldn't be centered around a disaster. It should be centered around the root causes, which inevitably might lead to a disaster if you don't address it. And that is where I think disaster risk reduction, disaster risk management and resilience thinking, it places you or forces you to place your thinking outside of just the disaster frame and asking really difficult, complex issues uh, that cuts across sectors and disciplines and foci has basically shown the errors in this kind of cyclical planning and suggested other ways of, of going about and, and looking and understanding disaster. One of the conversations that we had recently was with a gentleman named Aaron Marks, who's a guest on the podcast, and we talked about governance and emergency management. And, and it was interesting in terms of trying to frame the governance problem within the context of emergency management and response, because we continue to make decisions just like what you're saying. We go through this disaster management cycle, you know, we plan, we prepare, we respond, recover, mitigate, and we go through this over and over and over again, often with very much the same results without removing this just risking as part of that equation and then trying to reduce overall impacts because at the end of the day, I'm just sort of giving a short synopsis here, but at the end of the day, it still has to be a governance decision on implementation, new policies, you know, financial sort of payments, the, the economic aspect and changing the way that we live in our society. And that's going to be something that I think is really the future of where we're going because it's not just this response cycle, recovery cycle anymore. At the time we are recording this, I mean, there's the fires that were in Hawaii and you can just see the, the mass devastation. And then the question becomes, what now? Just recover and replace everything? Or what do we do to reduce future risk? 
And then that, are we going to invest in that? There's all these sort of questions that come out of that if we really want to break the cycle. And so what was your research pointing towards as some things that community leaders can take a look at in terms of trying to break out this cycle? I think the main problem that we sit with is that, and you alluded to it previously, that there's, first of all, human resource component that does not necessarily have the skills and understanding of what they need to do. We see it very much in this African environment where, it, like I said, it's an add-on to people's normal day's work. And if you're a fire chief, that's what you have been trained to do. And that's where your focus will lie. We, we will be in, in disaster response area. But I think that the bigger problem and what we showed here is that Disaster risk must be understood as a multidisciplinary problem. It is not just the fire chief or the disaster management center's responsibility to address this. If we try to do this, we, we're back in this the same cycle. The same people will try and solve the same problem with the same kind of solutions that's not working. It must be understood that this cuts across all sectors of government. If it's a government issue, doesn't matter which sector you find yourself in, you have some kind of responsibility in disaster risk and you have to share the risk and the responsibility of mitigation. And what our research point at is that we have to embark more on a process of risk-informed development. All of these, the vulnerability that we sit with in, in various communities, all the, the possibility of, of hazardous exploitation comes back to poor development decisions or the fact that development doesn't take place. So if we approach it from a risk-informed, it makes it much easier to fill the voids left by the, the risk that, that we said. And this is where you will have better urban spaces being planned, better infrastructure, better more, more resilient infrastructure, better understanding of community needs and how that can be addressed through limited budget application, taking into account that our development should not create risk. Uh, so there's various things, well, there are many, many things we can do. But if within our government structure, we don't realize that this is everyone's business, it becomes extremely difficult for one person to bang their drum and to address the, the issues. And just by saying that, we all know that most governments still focus in, in silence. And it's a constant, I think, battle to, to break down those silence, to break through the silos. And uh, I mean, our research show we, it has happened. For instance, in Malawi is a very good example. These benefits that, that comes from that. And the more people talk about it, the more they realize, oh, well, this is how I contribute to disaster risk from my perspective. And they run with it. And once you have those champions in various sectors, then you see the benefit of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, that risk-informed development is going to be a key piece moving forward. And I think that needs to be focused on a lot more, especially if you're, I don't want to say fortunate, but maybe in an unfortunate situation of where you're working in an administration or a government and you have to rebuild your community. And so I think that's the opportune time to try and make significant changes. But when we talk about stakeholders, because so we talk about this multi-domain aspect, we talk about different stakeholders, recognition by public, private, academia, communities as well you know, private sector in terms of maybe businesses, but also NGOs, how do they view their different roles in terms of promoting better disaster risk governance? And how has it been going in Africa? Yeah, it was a very interesting question. I mean, a lot of the disaster management, disaster risk management activities has actually been driven and funded by international organizations, whether it's humanitarian organizations or whether it's UN organizations. It's been kind of a, you know, pushing the donkey uphill battle. And I understand why there's, there's quite a lot of frustration within that sector as well. If you look at the amount of money that has been spent, I'm not only just talking about disaster risk issues, but obviously humanitarian and, and post-disaster recovery. A lot of money has gone into a black hole and it hasn't benefited the beneficiaries as we thought. And it, it left a space, the government's basically left a space for the humanitarian actors to fall. And, and they had to do this. If you look at the work of, of OCHA, of UN Habitat, funders like USAID, also DFID, they came in, GIZ, the Germans are doing quite a lot of work. 
And they realized if they don't fill this space, the investment in development are just going to go down the tube. So they, they had to intervene. Um, so that's a, the one unfortunate aspect is that I think a, government, a lot of governments has now adopted this wait and see approach. Let another disaster occur, the international community will come in and, and assist us. We're going to do a lot of development through that process so it doesn't go to our fiscal. And we'll just, you know, kind of build the car as, as we drive it. So it's a nonsense perspective they have, and I'm, I'm saying it quite generally. It's not obviously everyone that what has it, but we, we still see this happening. And I think that's where the reluctance come in to fund disaster risk projects and processes from a government perspective. I previously mentioned the, the plan of action. Now, we've done research in, in all 54 African Union states, and we, one of the questions that we ask is, how much do you actually fund locally? So what's a dollar amount that you fund locally for disaster risk projects? And the data that we receive is extremely poor or non-existent. I just don't know, because the funding comes from outside. Now, there's been kind of this discussion on, you know, in the corridors here to say, what would happen if the international community just stopped funding for disaster reduction and asked governments to do that themselves? What would actually happen? And the answer would be shocking that nothing, even we would be in a, in a worse situation because people aren't switched onto that yet. But this must happen. Governments need to take responsibility and work that into their budget. And we that has happened, we see that things are going fine. And now I think that is one of the, the key issues is we need to understand in this process who's the role players and who's supposed to be leading this, the whole disaster risk reduction environment. And unfortunately, it should not be the international community. It should be governments on all levels that take this, this responsibility and carry it forward. But that's unfortunately, I think, one of those uphill battles that we'll, we will continue to fight in decades to come. If they don't see the benefit, immediate benefit within the very short political space where the politicians find themselves, they are not going to invest in this. Our politicians at the local government level, I think in most cases, stick around for about five years. So their memory and their need to do anything is just a five-year period. And they would rather spend money, if they do this, on direct development initiatives. Let's build houses or let's ensure sanitation or let's assist agriculture and spending it on something quite abstract. And that's, I think, the kind of focus that, that we need to get to the politicians that they understand, well, there's more to do than just normal development. I think that's something that we find across all countries, to be honest, in terms of sort of the political timeline, trying to appeal to a voter base, prepare for the next election, and then trying to contrast that with the, the 20 or 30 or 40 year timeline of reducing uh, risk with disasters. And I think that's something that is we, we are challenged with all the way around the world in terms of trying to get investment. I saw this when I was on the response side of the house for many, many years which is we essentially said after a disaster, you have a two-week window of opportunity to try and get any additional funding because after that, you know, the news cycle changes and then they're moving on to some other priority. And so while it is a priority, you can get the investment and, and get some people's attention, but then after that, it's lost again. And it's very, very difficult to try and communicate in long-term timelines on these types of programs and get people to understand risk and that the if nothing ever happens, that's actually the outcome that you want. And, and that's something that is not tangible and, and people don't tend to try and invest in. And that becomes very difficult. And one of the ways that has often been, well, has been said at least recently in one of our interviews about trying to raise awareness was to have something in terms of a, a risk index for people in communities so that they understand from private sector, from public sector, the risk of where people are living and then put that right in front of them as a score, right? Here's where you're living and this is the risk to you and have that be front and center all the time so they understand where they're building and the risk from chemicals from a local machine shop or something like that, you know, and, and just so that people understand and it, it's sort of a publication, you know, piece of transparency in a corporate environment that they have to publicize these things and their scores about risk in their communities and the risk that they have bringing into a community. 
And so that's where I think that that's something that is interesting. But this is a long-term issue, and we haven't quite figured out, I don't think in many ways, how to resolve the issue of our timelines on disaster risk reduction versus competing political timeline. Has there been any discussions or any good initiatives that you've seen that have tried to address this issue? It's quite funny because on a political level, we're quite looking at climate change issues, which are even much longer. So there's no reason why political office bearers can't be doing this. I think it's just a political will of saying, yes, now it's an issue because now I sit with a problem, but I can't pass on this problem to the next person and to the next one, to the next one. We we need to do something about it. So I think from a political perspective, to me, it's not a difficult thing to do. It's honestly, we, we do have everything in place. Just a question of, Let's make the right decision, allocate the resources. To pick up on, on your point of understanding the risk, this relates to, to both of these, these questions. The research that we're currently doing for the Africa Union Commission is to build a, a kind of a dashboard countries to understand where they are in implementing the Sendai and, and the program of action. And just by having that kind of continental focus, we've seen it, it catches the attention of, of the ministers specifically because they want to understand why do I have a 1.4 and I had a 1.6? What, what has happened? So all of a sudden, and this displaying of data and, and the variable fix people's imagination and they, they come up, okay, now how do we get from a two to a three? What what should we do? And that's that's been proven to be quite a thing. And from a ministerial perspective, we see that they are holding their subordinates accountable now to answer towards these goals, achieving the objective of Sendai and of the plan of action. But that's just one component. It's fine to say, okay, we score for instance a four out of five because we have planning in place, but we have to interrogate what that means. Okay, you've got a national disaster management plan. What does it mean? How is it implemented at sub-national level and how effective is it? And I don't think we've been in the position yet to answer those, those type of questions. And then we also have issue of subnational politicians that also needs to fall in line for their communities, whether it's on a regional or whether it's on a, on a municipal and local basis. And they need to be educated and also understand within these limited timeframes what the right decisions to be made. But like I said, I think it's absolutely possible. It's just getting the right process in place and, and let that run. No, I think that's a fantastic point. If we're having these conversations around climate security and climate change and other long-term impacts, then we should easily have the same conversation about overall disaster risk reduction platforms. I mean, you're absolutely right in that regard. And I completely agree with that. And so let's discuss that a little bit in terms of the impact of climate change on disaster risk governance in Africa. And, and what are some of the, the work that you're doing at your center? And what are some of the practical or tangible things that you're seeing come as, as actions from the different institutions or civil society or, or government? We put out the message that disaster risk reduction, climate change are two sides of the same way. And that's something that we've been pushing quite a lot in the past 10, uh, 15 years. A lot that we need to do to achieve or address climate change issues and adaptation reduces disaster risk. I think we, we all agree to that argument. You can get the policymakers and the planners to understand this. You get synergy in planning and you get a lot of mitigation and disaster risk reduction that has happened. So we speak to governments where we do projects. We try to always address both of these issues. You can't just focus on the one and then leave it and then you go on to the next. These things are so intertwined and integrated that you need to be thinking of both. And just saying that to many people that's not within this space, it's quite daunting to get your head around, okay, you have to think about all of these major things that are climate change and now you're throwing disaster issues as well. You know, my brain hurts and I'm not going to work at this. So what we found that is a, is a very nice equalizer or you know, kind of a level of playing field is not to necessarily throw disaster risk and climate change issues to politicians and your planners, but to have it more around the discussion of resilience and development because people understand that. 
And if you can make a connection between, we want to achieve much more resilience to find, how do we go about this? And while we're doing this, we're also addressing issues that would make them less resilient or would impact on the resilience. And that relates 100% to your development challenges, to your disaster risk, and your climate change adaptation. If we say we want to be resilient, the question is resilient to what? And that opens up the space to talk about, well, we need to be resilient to climate change issues. And now we sit with heat waves like we've never seen before in the past uh, 200 years of, of recorded data. What do we do about this? You know, it's not just a development issue all of a sudden. It doesn't not talk about climate change. It talks about disaster risk issues. And that opens up the space for, for very meaningful conversation. So our work has kind of shifted a bit. We've got this hidden agenda of obviously we want to address disaster risk issues, but we, we frame it much more subtly within the resilience context. And what our research also have been doing is to try and do our analysis around complex systems and complex adaptive systems, you know, much more on a higher level if you're talking, working with planners or technicians in government. And they understand that again. They understand the complexity of systems and the constraints of it and the benefit of using such an analysis. So all of a sudden you open up spaces for conversation that you never had or that would have been closed if you throw these loaded terms of climate change adaptation and disaster risk reduction to people. And that has so far shown to be quite effective. And we also see in the Southern Africa context, many governments have now also kind of shifted their thinking and you see a couple of strategic policies and plans around resilience coming up. A lot of focus on resilient urban centers, which is our major, major concern in Africa. And it's heartening that if you read those documents, disaster risk issues and disaster risk reduction are woven into all of them. And that's what we want to see. That, that gets me excited. Very interesting. I think we need to capitalize on all these opportunities, especially as you're saying, Two sides of the same coin, as we discuss climate change, climate security, and then also a disaster risk reduction perspective, I mean, they, they shouldn't be separated. So using that current conversation to also drive the discussion in terms of disaster risk reduction platforms as well is, is going to be very helpful. But to your, your point about the urban resilience and city centers and things like that in urban populations, why is that such a concern for, for Africa now? Well, if you look at the amount of people migrating into urban centers, it, it's exponential at this stage. We're going to sit with, well, I don't have the stats on hand, but billions of people more in the next 20 years within urban centers. We, we have this massive drain on the rural areas. We obviously questions around food security issues of agriculture and urban development, you know, the food value change. Oh, there's, there's so many things that just uh, it's a major concern when I'm thinking about these things. But our urban centers are exponentially growing. More younger people want to be in the urban centers. They see it, obviously, for all these reasons that we know. And with that, our urban development and our monies within urban centers can't keep up. Uh, South Africa, that's, that's fairly well developed. If you go to our major urban centers, you will see there's a total decay that's happening in terms of services being able to deliver, infrastructure that's being maintained, um, housing, sanitation, clean water. This is just in South Africa. I mean, the rest of Africa, you have very much similar problems that you see. And all of these has got a knock-on effect beside the fact that people are extremely vulnerable and exposed to any type of hazard that, that could impact on it's got a major impact into the development and the sustainable development of those centers going forward. So our focus within the urban centers has revolved a lot around understanding the urban risk issues and the urban rural linkages that either fuel or mitigate those problems. We also have within the region centers specifically focusing on urban aspects and they develop a toolkit called City Wrap, which basically looks at taking city officials through a process of planning around their resilience and disaster risk issues and trying to understand the underlying processes, linking it up to, to their development planning and specific actions 
And on the other side, also much linked to support being given by the international organizations because the methodology, I think, is, is fairly fine. It's not prescribing or trying to measure, but it's, it's allowing them to develop their own process. And that is, that's wonderful because they take ownership. And once again, developmental resilience lean, that gives much benefit in the urban risk environment as well. So in the African context, we see this is where 90% of our attention could lie, especially if we talk about climate change. If you look at the amount of population in Africa living on coastal areas, it's a huge concern. And there's, like I said, there's already quite a lot happening, but I think much more can be done in understanding urban risk and, and trying to mitigate it through whichever means, which will be development questions at the end of the day. Your point on the international organizations is, I think, really spot on because you know, working with international organizations and some of the work that we do, we work with that international policy and guidance that gets issued by many of the international organizations from the UN to NATO to others. And it is a guide, I guess I could say, but the real magic, if I were to use that term, happens when there's local ownership. And so it's not prescriptive in terms of what absolutely you have to do, but it asks for the fundamental frameworks and, and foundation of national response planning or energy security or food and water security. It, it's, it's sort of outlining these fundamental aspects that we have to have in society in order to secure our future. But at the same time, the way that it's done, the methodology that's you know applied is based on every nation, their legislation, their frameworks, their organizational structures, bureaucracy you know, staffing, politics, everything else that goes along with it, and including economics. And so that's one of the key roles that I believe in, in terms of international organizations are, is to provide some of that framework guidance to nations to be able to at least start that conversation, to identify gaps, and to be able to provide a, get a bit of guidance for nations to be able to get started or for communities to be able to get started in terms of building more sustainable, resilient societies. But in terms of the work that you're talking about with the international organizations as well, do you find that to be a common theme or is that something that is different from your perspective working at the center? No, not at all. Like a lot of these disaster risk and, and resilience issues have come from these international organizations. And what we see is we've always tried to push the advocate for mainstreaming disaster risk reduction. And a lot of our working governments have been trying to do that with all the constraints, as I mentioned previously. But a lot of international organizations have been able to do this. If you look at OCHA, if you look at the work that you and Habitat um, have been doing, you and Women, there's, there's such a lot of focus now on the disaster risk agenda. And they incorporate that into what their program is doing and what they also expect from. If you see at the projects being funded, even by international donors, a lot of this talks about this cross-sectoral disaster risk issue. So it's heartening to see that. But I don't think there's one that is not linking disaster risk issues when they're doing their work. You'd always find it somewhere in the, the kind of thinking. You, you can read it within the, the documents that see this. There's a kind of a political world to address these issues. And that's wonderful. But what I don't see yet is that translation into African government. The talk at national level might be there, but the implementation at subnational level is extremely poor. If I can use South Africa as an example, again, we were one of the first countries to have what we call this new generation disaster risk legislation. It took us the better part of about 12 years to have a fair implementation of the act, and it was promulgated in 2003. We still have major deficits in implementing the legislation in municipalities. And while you sit with that situation, it's just like, you know, it's just a talk shop. We're just saying we're doing this. We have legislation, we have policies, we have plans, but there's no real output to it. There's nothing we can see in how this affects the population or the community or how it reduces their risk or what makes them safer. And that is this kind of issue that we still sit with. Although there's a major international push, it does not necessarily find its way from on a subnational level. That's our concern is why does this not happen? Why do we have 
wonderful early warning systems in place. Very technical, state-of-the-art stuff. Yet people are receiving the message. They're not listening to messages. They're not reacting to messages. You know, you know you've got a saying in English that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And that's the problem we sit with. It. We can't see necessarily the benefit at a subnational level. And the only way we're going to be able to address this is once again, to get this into our development planning and getting people to understand, well, this is important because at the end of the day, it's going to lead to these benefits in people's well-being. I think you're fi- faced with one of the challenges that many community leaders and, and others, representatives are trying to take and, and operationalize a lot of these policies and trying to get that down to a community level. And so it's going to be a struggle for all of us to try and operationalize a lot of these this guidance and, and documents and frameworks and guidelines that are all coming out from the different organizations and trying to really bring that into a an actionable, measurable implementation plan within our communities. I'm sure there's successes out there, but I agree with your point that it remains to be a significant challenge for many of us and it's something that we constantly see as well. So yeah, so we're running just about out of time. So first of all, I wanted to thank you very much for, for joining us today, Professor Bandykirk. It's really your insights and things like that in terms of disaster risk reduction, your experience and, and the, the background you're working with in terms of Africa and, and uh, Tercita there is really interesting for me to hear about and give such a different global perspective on terms of the, the same issues that we're dealing with in an international level. And it's, it's really nice to be able to hear your perspective as well. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you have any feedback or suggestions for a future podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on our website or social media channels. And if you like the topics and discussions, please share and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. And we'll see you in the next episode. Until then, Dewalt, how can we reach out to you? And if somebody wants to get in contact with you, what's what's the best way to do that? Well, um, I'm horrible at social media, but you'll probably find me on LinkedIn. You can look at the Northwest University website, nwu.ac.za. You can do a search then you'll find me. Or the easiest, my email address with this horrible yevolt.fanlikar at nwu.ac.za. There's just a dot between my name and surname and then at nwu.ac.za. Well, thanks again for joining us. And we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can reach out to you if they have any questions about the work you're doing at your center and if they have any insights or experiences, they can share those as well. Other than that, thanks a lot for your time today. Really do appreciate it. And uh, thanks for joining us.